Welcome to Always on Mission, evangelizing in challenging times. I'm Rosemary Maffey. And I'm Tom Lyman. And we're coming to you from the Archdiocese of Boston. We're hoping to bring you some joy and encouragement during this challenging time. And each week we're going to profile a saint as well as spend time interviewing a guest who is doing exactly that. Hey, Tom, how you doing? Not bad. How are you this week? Good. Third week of Easter. The party continues. Amen. Alleluia. That's right. So what have you been up to in your pandemic lockdown, Rosemary? Not too much interesting, but it has been fun to catch up with friends near and far. So I have an ongoing game night virtually with friends from college who live as close as the neighboring town to me and as far away as Amsterdam. So that's been really fun. What about you, Tom? That's pretty cool. Yeah, we, uh, my wife and kids and I drove over to my sister's about 40 minutes away and had a little driveway visit, social distancing visit, um, which was a real pleasure. And they traded off some girl baby clothes that we need more of as she's, she's getting bigger and bigger. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And I hear, did you also re- do some home renovation or? I did. I've been uh, spending time putting in a new front walk. You know, that was the first thing we saw when we looked at the house three years ago. It was just completely cracked and broken front walk. And I finally said, that's it. I'm taking it out. And so we put in some pavers. That's so cool. All right. So let's dive into our saint for today. Who are we going to explore? Today, we're going to take a look at blessed Frédéric Osanam, Frederick Osanam, who is the founder of the St. Vincent de Paul Society. So tell me, where is he from? What time period did he live? Blessed Frédéric was uh, French. And so he was, he was born in Milan, grew up in Lyon. And uh, born in 1813, died in 1853 at the young age of 40. Okay, that's awesome. And tell me a little bit about what led up to his intellectual conversion. Yes, so um, Frédéric was uh, someone who was very gifted academically. And uh, he, his faith solidified in his late teen years at a Catholic school. Uh, and he was sent off to study at the Sorbonne, which even today is still one of the finest academic institutions in France. And it was there that he was sent to study law. Uh, and while there, he had a little discussion club. He, lo- he and his friends loved to debate, much like many college students still love to do today. Um, and he ha- at this discussion group, he had Catholics, atheists, agnostics, all debating the issues of the day, day kind of from their different perspectives. And at one point, Frédéric was speaking about Christianity's role in civilization, something he felt very strongly about. A club member said, let us be frank, Mr. Osanam. Let us also be very particular. What do you do besides talk to prove the faith that you claim is in you? And Frederic was stung by this. You know, what do you do besides talk about it? And so as a result, he said, you know what? We'll take this exactly where it's going. And so in May of 1833, uh, he's only 20 years old. He gathers a few friends um, to found... Um, the Conference of Charity, it was first called. And he began by visiting the poorest neighborhoods in Paris and giving to the poor. Uh, and one of the first things he did was, was give his extra store of winter firewood to a widow who had lost her husband in a cholera epidemic. And so it was this cholera epidemic that produced such terrible conditions in Paris that there was a grave need for help among the poorest of the poor. And there was a sister of the Society of, uh, of the Daughters of Charity, which had been founded by St. Vincent de Paul. Her name was Sister Rosalie Rondu, 
and she led um, Frederic and his friends into the poorest neighborhoods herself to show him where to work and who to work with and how to work with these poor folks um, and really was their, their guide at this time. So tell me, how did that lead to then the founding of the Society of St. Vincent de Paul? And speak a little bit about the awesome legacy they have even today. Yes. So this, these little, this little conference of charity um, evolved into the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, which had as its aim not just to, uh, to give materially to the poor, but also to, to come to know these people and love them and to help them improve. Um, and so he had some really remarkable, um, he, he said some really remarkable things. Um, and I'll give you one as an example. Here you go. Yours must be a work of love, of kindness. You must give your time, your talents, yourselves. You know, so the expectation that you wouldn't just be giving of things, but also of your very self. The poor person is a unique person of God's fashioning with an inalienable right to respect. You must not be content with tiding the poor over the poverty crisis. You must study their condition and the injustices which brought about such poverty with the aim of a long-term improvement. So really a profound understanding of poverty, um, both from a theological, a spiritual perspective, but also from a sociological perspective, you know, using kind of um, the best of human science to understand something that, that Jesus said would always be with us. So kind of a combination of the two, faith and reason together. This led to the, you know, uh, leads to the, the St. Vincent de Paul societies today, which these days has about 190,000 members in 90 countries around the world. Yeah. And they continue to do this exact same work. And if you've ever met with folks who do this work, they very much are imbued with the spirit of, of Osanam. And many of our listeners might be familiar with this in their own parish. Absolutely. Uh, this is something that exists in a great many parishes and, and communities around the Archdiocese of Boston and indeed around the U.S. Now, what can we learn? What can we apply from his life as we try to evangelize in these challenging times? You know, uh, Osanam had his own perspectives about evangelizing. He very much felt that his own time was a very difficult one. You know, we look back on history and kind of these are just obscure dates or periods. But to bring it a little more to life, um, he was in Paris immediately after a, a turbulent revolutionary period around 1830-31, um, when things were very much in turmoil. And following the French Revolution and the ne Napoleonic um, Empire, uh, it was a time not friendly to the faith. Remember, many, many church properties had been seized, religious orders been closed and suppressed. Um, and the church made subservient to uh, the government. Uh, so this was a very difficult time for Catholics. Um, and he said, he said to, to others, he said, you know, let us learn, first of all, to defend our belief without hating our adversaries. Right? That's still a challenge today. To appreciate those who do not think as we do. To recognize that there are Christians in every camp and that God can be served now as always. He says, let us complain less of our times and more of ourselves. Let us not be discouraged. Let us be better, which to me is very inspiring in this time. Let us not complain of our times. You know, we see on social media complaint after complaint about our times, about all the restrictions and the limitations and the things that we, we don't have, which indeed are many um, and, and are indeed a loss. 
But he says, let's complain less about this stuff and more about the things that are wrong with ourselves. That's a good challenge for each one of us. It's a good challenge for each one of us. So I find his message and his perspective to be timeless in, in many ways. Now, I think we're all going to pray together for Frederick's canonization. Yes, there are actually, uh, he was beatified in 1997, but there are actually two miracles under study right at this moment um, that would be his canonization miracles should they be approved. Now, this takes many years and lots of investigation. So let's pray for this and, and let this prayer, you know, enlighten us a bit to Blessed Frederic's spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, you made Blessed Frederic Ozanam a witness of the gospel, full of wonder at the mystery of the church. You inspired him to alleviate poverty and injustice and endowed him with untiring generosity in the service of all who were suffering. In family life, he revealed the most genuine love as a son, brother, husband, and father. In secular life, his ardent passion for the truth enlightened his thought, writing, and teaching. His vision for our society was a network of charity encircling the world, and he instilled St. Vincent de Paul's spirit of love, boldness, and humility. His prophetic social vision appears in every aspect of his short life, together with the radiance of his virtues. We thank you, Lord, for those many gifts, and we ask, if it is your will, the grace of a miracle through the intercession of Blessed Frédéric Ozanam. May the Church proclaim his holiness as a saint, as a providential light for today's world. We make this prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Much like Blessed Frederick, our next guest was ready to commit, step up and serve the needs of others, and is trusting in the Lord for results. Stay tuned for our conversation with John Corcoran, a faithful disciple in our Archdiocese of Boston. Welcome back to Always On Mission, evangelizing in challenging times. Tom and I are thrilled to be joined by John Corcoran. John and his wife and four children live in Essex, Massachusetts, and are, he's an active Catholic both at the parish level and beyond, really using his gifts and talents to serve our church. John is the founder and a member of the board of directors of Trinity Partners, a global consultancy that, of life sciences. Beyond like Trinity Partners, John has many professional interests. I'm just going to name a few that really relate to our conversation today. John is a member of the Board of Catholic Leadership Institute, Collegium Catholica, and iCatholic Media, which consists of Catholic Television, The Pilot, and Pilot Publishing, and finally, Pope St. John the Twenty-Third Seminary. Welcome, John. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So I think folks will really be interested in learning a little bit about your professional background, passions, and interests. Could you share a little bit about that first? Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, most of my professional work has been in life sciences. Life sciences is a relatively new term for, uh, that essentially captures um, pharmaceuticals, biotech, a hot, a hot area, obviously, in, in today's world. Trinity is a life sciences consulting firm, advisory firm. We work with 
um, a range of clients globally, both on the commercial and clinical sides of, uh, of life sciences. Our work is, as consultants has always been um, more quantitative than most consulting firms. And that I think that begat my interest in data and analytics and in technology. So in essence, our flavor of consulting is a little bit more um, quantitative than most firms that do consulting or advisory work. And some of that has uh, has transferred into work in some of the ministries and boards that I'm involved with, with the church. The idea that while the church may not be as awash in data and technology as uh, the life sciences industry is, these technologies are new and exploding. Uh, they are how people spend their time and activity today. And so the the thesis, in essence, which I, I guess has become a little bit of a mission, is to convert that knowledge that I have during the day into uh, a platform that can be useful for the church, both generally, but also most particularly for evangelization, to, to spread the word of our faith. It's a... Um, it's, it's a bit of uncharted territory because um, most of these things are new to the church. Uh, I often say, why would we expect the church to be good at technology? But that doesn't mean the church can't be good at technology. And that, uh, that has become my particular interest. So given your great fascination with data analytics and innovation and your executive experience, speak to, and you've started to unpack this a little bit, but speak to how important it is for us to be innovative in evangelization? Well, ahead of this conversation today, I went back and looked at some of the, um, some of the dialogue and exchanges that even, even in uh, the various popes, the last popes, Francis Benedict, have, have shared with the faithful on these topics. And they go back as early as 2002 when, um, when Pope Benedict was asked about, um, and this, this was sort of an early Twitter world about um, the interest of these things and among the faithful. And he was, he was wise enough to discern these were places where people were increasingly engaging. If you fast forward now to 2020, some of the numbers of uh, just internet consumption broadly, but social media consumption in particular, particularly when you go to younger populations, um, you see um, you see extraordinarily high levels of usage during the course of a day. I always tell people you don't you don't have to like any of that when you see six, eight, ten, twelve hours a day of consumption on the internet, whatever that means. You know, some of that could be just watching movies and but. So we're, we're, we're presented with an interesting contrast. We see that this is how people spend their time. This is how information is disseminated. If we fast forward a little bit, um, Pope, Pope Francis recently, last year at the World Day of Social Communication, talked about this. And while these are powerful tools, they, uh, they also can create isolation. They're not substitutes for human engagement for the personal uh, I think he used the, the term, uh, expression of concern for young people can become social hermits, that their identity is tethered to their, to their phone or to their device. So these are, the, these are the downsides. And I look at it holistically and say, if indeed the, the average adult is, is engaging in the internet and social media six, eight hours a day, one, one question to ask is what share of voice does does the church have of that of that time span? And the answer can't be a few seconds a day. 
None of these are, are substitutes for personal engagement. None of these are substitutes for the Eucharist, for the sacraments, but they are tools that can point people towards those things. And um, the only reason you would be against those things would be if you assume that in a year or two, they'll all go away. And if anything has, has happened in the last 45 days or so with people at home increasingly, the usage of those things has skyrocketed. So the, the interesting question becomes, can, be the, can these be utilized in effective ways to help evangelize, to, uh, to deliver positive messages, to, to drive people to a deeper exploration of their faith? And I think the answer to that is yes. I think you have to be careful. Pope Francis is correct that there, there's a bit of a minefield that's being laid out there. We have to be really careful. But, you know, go back, go back in time. The church wasn't good at, at radio in the 1930s. It wasn't good at TV in the 1950s. Uh, it probably wasn't good at publishing a newspaper 100 years ago. And it got good at those things. And, and it can, we can create a flavor of them that's, that's both engaging and powerful and appropriate. So cool. Thank you. And what great input that while this can't replace the in-person relationship, it can supplement that. And it's so important for us to meet people where they are and be on these sites and tools to evangelize, to complement what we're doing in person. Well, we're, we're on one today. We're all on a video conference call today. Is this as good as all being in the same room? No, probably not. We still have an opportunity here for dialogue and exchange and, and information sharing and gathering. And, and if, if all this happened as recently as 20 years ago, 25 years ago, we would not have this technology. We, we might be doing this on a phone. Uh, and even there, it would be difficult because we'd all be trying to figure out how to conference everybody else in. So the... It's important to note, too, that the, the pace of technology here is really fast, that two years ago, nobody ever heard of TikTok. And now young people, particularly young teens, are, are on this, this device, this platform, three or three, four hours a day. Two or three years from now, there'll be something else yet again that nobody knows about. It may be 20 years from now that our, our children or grandchildren are looking at and, and they're hearing us talk about Facebook and laughing. It's like us talking about vinyl records or something. So there is an enormous pace of change here. And I think selectively and carefully and thoughtfully, the church can stake out places in that, in that continuum. Think of how many masses are being streamed online uh, right now. Is it the same as going to mass in the physical sense? No, no one, no one would pretend it is, but it's better than nothing. It's better than nothing. And I think increasingly with people at home, so the idea would be that if they're streaming mass, you don't have to just stream it on Sunday. You can stream it anytime you want. It's on demand. You can pull up, you can pull up Catholic art, literature, music, podcasts, what, whatever you want. Filling that white space, particularly for Catholics who maybe have gotten a little more casual in their faith life that have reduced it down to an hour on Sunday. You know, let's let's fill up that white space between between Sundays. But let's let's offer choices. Let let's let's make it so that people figure out what works for them, what they want to engage with. Nothing wrong with watching a movie or listening to music, Catholic or otherwise, but why not why not spend a little time with your faith? And with community, you can build community and we could do this on a regular basis. Uh, I have been on Zooms with 100 people on them and they work. Yeah, so important, like Pope St. John Paul II tells us to continuously use the new methods and order as things evolve. John, I appreciate hearing how, how you're finding the positive, even uh, in these challenging times. Like, in other words, you're seeing the opportunity present during all these hours of the week um, where ordinarily the person sitting at home would not have access. 
to these aspects of life in the church. How has the pandemic impacted or affected your own role in the various ministries and things that you do for the church? So in terms of the ministries that I participate in and the boards that I'm on, uh, we've, we've, we've all had to adapt as everybody has. Depending upon the ministry, so for example, I'm the board chair of iCatholic Media, which includes Catholic television. Catholic TV has, aside from being around for a very long time and very, being a very well-established presence, has been comfortable embracing new technology. They understand that, particularly among younger people, again, that uh, broadcast TV is not necessarily where they receive information. So you can watch Catholic TV pretty much anywhere. You can watch it on Roku. You can watch it on Apple. You can watch it on Facebook. It's all over the place. And obviously their utilization is 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 growing in leaps and bounds. So there, there it, it has been a positive for for other ent- entities that are um, that are working with dioceses and parishes, like Catholic Leadership Institute has done work, obviously in the Archdiocese of Boston. It's more challenging because dioceses all over the country, with with almost no exception, uh, are dealing with the the suspension of masses. This is um, in, in the other sacraments, but most particularly Sunday Mass. This has led to um, to financial and economic challenges, um, and I hate to reduce it to that, but that that is a reality because part of these, part of all this, is to look at it through the lens of of a parish as a business. And I know that makes some people uncomfortable, but that's what I do all day. And in the business world, things occasionally of a bad variety can happen. Um, in the drug industry, for example, where I spend my day, well, most of our clients have been extraordinarily successful, and we're happy for that. We are in a regulated space, and every once in a while, as a drug proceeds through the clinical development process, um, it stops. It might be halted. It might get a decline from the FDA. Bad things happen. Are they as bad as a pandemic? No, but but they can have just as profound impacts within an organization, and organizations have to adjust. Where, where I'm trying to be helpful now is not just to maintain and extend the work of the, the, the entities that I'm involved with, but also offer a little bit of perspective and um, some guidance for for this diocese and and others about what to do in this kind of situation because while it while it looks unique and once in a lifetime calamities have befallen the world before and they will again it's hard to give advice to to an entity when you're in the middle of a firestorm you know when you're in the middle of a forest fire nobody wants to hear that the, the way to put the forest fire out is to get out of the forest you know, step aside, look at it more, um, um, you know, scale the problem, see the magnitude of it. That's, that's, a, that's a skill that some business people have. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of entities in the world reopen over the last few months in a very limited way. That might be what the church has to do. Where I'm trying to be helpful is just bringing in some of those, um, those perspectives and a little bit of um, past experience into into this situation, understanding that it is unique and perhaps generational. And again, I don't expect that there's a lot of this expertise inside most dioceses. Um, people become priests not to not to deal with crises, you know, they, or at least this kind of crisis. So, so I think this is a call for for people of all types on, on the, in the lay community, where we have skills that can be thoughtfully applied and guidance suggested to. To bring them forward, because this is a little bit of an all hands on deck experience. We're all in uncharted water here. Isn't that the truth? You know, I, just today we were talking about Blessed Frederico Zanam, uh, founder of the St. Vincent de Paul Society, who said that, let us go in simplicity where merciful providence leads us, 
content to see the stone on which we should step, without wanting to discover all at once and completely the windings of the road, you know? And it seems to me that you're identifying, you're helping the church identifying some of the steps, some of the stones to step on. There is a, there's a, there's a characteristic of a crisis, pandemic or otherwise, that at least for a while, they look overwhelming. There's a sense of, what do we do? Because it, it, it appears that you're under attack on all fronts. And you may be, but the, the best thing to do in a, in a crisis is, is try to manage it to a stop, to, to try to get some control over it. With the suspension of masses in the archdiocese and most dioceses coming up on, what, five or six weeks now with probably another four, five, six to go, who knows? We, we, have, to, we have to think more uh, creatively about, about what that means. People have been starved of the Eucharist for, for that period of time. That's both sad, it's challenge, and it is an enormous opportunity to, to welcome people back. I remember right after 9-11, the following Sunday, I had two young children at the time, and we walked to our local church. It was a nice day. I think just the nature of walking to the church was sort of a normal habit that we put 9-11, what had happened five days before, kind of off to the side a little bit. And we got there a little early for a 10 o'clock mass maybe 20 of 10, and it was already packed. I mean, it was it was packed out the door. And there was this huge need to get to a church that people had five days later after one of the worst disasters in, in American history. That opportunity will avail, it avails itself right now, whenever that is, if it's next week or it's two months from now. I'm not an eternal optimist. I'm more of a pragmatist in life, but I, I see lots of upside coming forward. Um, and I, I don't think it's important Every parish opens and resumes fully, or five of them do, uh, as long as some of them do. And they reach out to our local and global community that has got to be just profoundly hurting right now, not just economically, but in every other way, but most particularly spiritually. It's interesting you should mention 9-11. I've often thought that the, the way that so many people came back to Mass right after that was a huge opportunity that I think we might have missed. But imagine, had we been ready those 19 years ago to kind of welcome many, many people back who'd been away for a while, where we might be today, you know. Um, but likewise, now we, we can see now that this is going on and this opportunity is going to present itself. So how can we prepare? Now, John, the 90 days now for your parish in, initiative, can you tell us what prompted you to, to think about, to think of this and to propose it? Yeah, that's an that's an interesting one because it's it's fairly current. It it started on a Friday, just a few Fridays ago. I received a I think it was an email letter from the archdiocese um, that was probably geared from a messaging standpoint of uh, essentially don't forget your parish in these tough times. The light bulb went on a little bit, and I said, you know, that's that makes sense. But there's no um, there's no vehicle here for me to donate. There's no you know, call to action, not a conscious omission. It just, it just wasn't there. So I, I thought about it a little overnight. And then on Saturday, I spent some time thinking about, well, what, what would a donation vehicle method look like? What would make the most sense? And what came to mind, and I think it's because we're in a political season and in the political world, what, what I was noticing more this season, candidates would reach out and say, you know, I'm, we need to raise a million dollars by Friday it had that kind of short-term, quick hit, fixed amount kind of characteristic to it. So, you know, that's kind of interesting. We're probably on that wavelength. 
what I what I thought um, made some sense was to keep the endeavor focused on parishes, to keep it local. The idea was not to ask for a lot of money on a one-time basis. It was literally to ask people to support their parish for 90 days, kind of a bridge. It was anticipating the gap that we're in right now from when masses were suspended and when they may come back. We wanted it parish-focused. We wanted it to be small amounts. We wanted to make it super easy to do, that you would find out about it, you would be able to log on and complete the payment in 30 seconds. I mean, just as quickly as it could be done, literally using a payment button. I created a prototype that looked like it made sense. Then the challenge was, all right, what do I do with it? <laughs> what, do I, what, do I, what do I call? Given that there's some urgency, and it, most parishes were probably starting to feel a little pinch, that suggested to me that go right up the top of the ladder. So I, I emailed the Cardinal Secretary Father Kickham and said, I have an idea. And he emailed me back in 17 minutes, which I think is an all-time record. He had not only reviewed it, but he had reviewed it with the Cardinal and said, do you mind if I, if I run this you know, around with people who might be able to get it going? And I said, well, yeah, of course. So what happened was a great a great group of folks formed within the, the Archdiocese, people from communications and development, a whole range of people got involved. And from that Sunday, it took a week to work through the system to make, to make it work and to launch it. So eight days later, we did. And as of right now, I don't have the exact number. We had over 200 parishes participating in it. It's optional. You don't have to do it. The response has been terrific. I, I haven't got one person that said, I don't like it. Even the, the optic of asking for money at a time when we realize that many people are hurting and, and are out of work and so forth. If that's your situation, that's okay. If you can see your way to, to help your parish, your parish on a 90-day basis at a level that's right for you, please do so. And here's an easy way to do it. So my, my hope is that we will do more of these kinds of things or can do more of these things in the diocese. You can launch all kinds of short duration kinds of endeavors. So in some ways, this is a little bit of a prototype. So, John, thank you so much for spearheading such an important initiative that is really supporting our parishes at this time. We've talked a little bit about how important it is to be innovative as it relates to evangelization. But I'd be curious to hear how this pandemic has affected your own walk with the Lord. I mentioned the uh, the availability of online resources. I think I think parishes, dioceses, um, Catholic ministries in general have have responded in remarkable ways to put information, resources online and otherwise, and made them available to people. And I'm I'm, I'm taking advantage. We gather as, as a family every Sunday morning to watch um, the Mass on Catholic TV. It's great. It's actually, we sit probably closer than we do in a pew in a church. So it, it has positive aspects there. You know, there's downsides. My mother passed away on, um, on the Easter Vigil, not, not from COVID. So we've been dealing as a family with the loss, that loss. We were catapulted right into that debate with so many people around us who have lost loved ones due to COVID. And the restrictions that are being imposed, just the, you can't have a funeral mass uh, right now. We had to skip, we were sort of out of order. We can do it later. This period has been one, as it can be for a lot of people, of deeper renewal and reflection. I have that additional layer, that context that, that I need to handle and process. You know, to, to think that my mother passed away at six o'clock on Saturday evening of the vigil. 
at 7.30, we watch the Mass. We watch the Easter Vigil Mass, uh, which starts out, as you know, dark, with a dark church, with those deep, beautiful Old Testament readings. What could be what could be better? By the end of it, it was bright and it was light. And, you know, we talked about it. And even at the cemetery, talking to my youngest daughter, her first experience with this kind of stuff, I said, you know, really, the only way you, you ever understand life is you have to understand death and the larger meaning of what death is. For me, this was an unusual Lent, a Lent without mass, you know, a Lent without visits to my mother, her loss. I mean, some of that I don't want to repeat <laughs> in the future, but you, know, you can do Lent anytime you want. You can do those same things all year round. So that's why I'm hopeful that this period that we're all in, the pandemic, while, while great harm has been done, uh, great loss of life, great, great economic failure, there is upside. This is an enormous opportunity for the church, and I hope, I hope we, we can take advantage of it. You know, faith sustains, right? That's where we are. Well, thank you for that, John. That was so beautiful. So before we let you go, we like to ask all of our guests, what does it mean to you to be always on mission? And how might you encourage our listeners to step up and use their own gifts and talents to evangelize in challenging times? The opportunity to, to find your faith or to deepen it is, is open at any point in your life at any age. I was talking to a family member recently around the passing of my mother that she was saying, I, I, I wish I had your faith. I just don't have it. And I said, well, you can get it. You know, you don't, you don't get faith in a, you don't buy it. It's not in a store. It's there all the time. And we, you know, we, we've all been given great gifts. And for me, I've, I've being Catholic and um, understanding what that means for me and my mission is profoundly good business. And, and you say, oh, you've reduced it down to dollars and cents. No, not at all. It, what it means is that when you've got in, in your life some, some sense of your gifts and talents and how you might apply them, and more importantly, why you are here and where you're going and why you were put here, you know, that translates to what people perceive to be a, a certain amount of confidence or the like. And well, I, and I guess it is a source of comfort and understanding that that does make you a better business person, but it makes you a better everything else, too. I know in our world where there's so many distractions, where the easy road, the easy choice um, has led to levels of not necessarily anti-religion, but secularism that are hard to understand because there's no, in essence, there's no there there. As I tell my children regularly, um, I, I have this, I have this faith. If it, if it works for me, that doesn't mean it works for you, but let's find out what works for you, how you will explore and understand your faith and what it means to be a follower of Christ in, in this world where it, you're the exception, you're the, you're the, you're the, you're the outlier. To, to me, it, it's perfectly okay to answer your question of how do, you, how do you interpret your mission? How do you follow it as mine? You know, that I was put here for a purpose, just like all of you were. And you know, part of that is let's find out what it is. Thanks so much, John. This has been such an encouraging discussion. And I hope the listeners are inspired to use their own gifts and talents to find their own purpose and role in the mission of the church. So thanks again. Tom, could you lead us in a closing prayer? Sure. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, we give you thanks for this conversation. And we thank you for the graces that you've given John Corcoran in his life. And the example that he has shown us of a unique way to evangelize in challenging times, using his gifts and talents, and seeing the opportunity that you've presented us in what seems like a dark time. We ask you to shine the light of your resurrection 
on all of us as we move through this new period of our lives. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe and we look forward to joining you next week on Always on Mission, evangelizing in challenging times. God bless.